Let me begin this morning with a question. When you think of God, what do you think about him? Do you associate him more with justice or compassion? Is he to you more a God of justice or a God of compassion? Many people I ask that question of see God more as a God of justice than a God of compassion. And when I ask them the reason why, in their explanation, I think it stems out of their own innate desire to have justice more than a desire to offer compassion. And you know what I'm talking about. We all demand justice. We all want justice. And very few of us are willing to offer compassion. And with those lenses, we see God through those lenses. And yet the Bible teaches us that God is both a God of justice and a God of compassion. These two characteristics about him are who he is in his very nature. And as we've spoken many times about the justice of God, we want to look this morning at the nature of God's compassion and how it is evidenced in our life every day as we continue our sermon series entitled Alone But Not Alone, Learning to See the Handprints of God. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. We begin in verse 40 as we exposit to chapter 19, verse 8. 1 Kings, chapter 18, verse 40 to chapter 19, verse 8. If you're new to the Bible, the book of 1 Kings is in the Old Testament. It follows 2 Samuel and is before 2 Kings. We want to learn this morning how to recognize God's handprint of compassion because many of us perhaps may be wondering, how does God show his compassion every day? I don't see it. Let's study it this morning. If you remember the sermon from last week, and if you weren't with us last week, I do highly recommend that you go to our website and catch up on this very pivotal sermon where we talk about Elijah and his confrontation with 450 prophets of Baal. And there on the top of Mount Carmel, God displays his sovereignty. God displays his greatness. God displays himself as the one true almighty God. After this encounter where God reveals himself as sovereign and great, look what happens in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, all captured and put to death, as was the punishment for all false prophets as mandated by God's Old Testament Mosaic law. And this act illustrates God's justice and holiness, which are consistent with his character. But when we read verses like this, many of us think of God as a God who is vengeful, a God who is full of retribution, and so our relationship has evolved based on fear and trembling. I wonder how many of us this morning are here. You're worshiping this Sunday morning because you feel that if you don't worship this morning, that bad things will happen to you. I think a lot of us have the notion that somehow if we do not come before God trembling, 
and act out of a sense of fear, then somehow God's vengeful retribution will be upon us. It's like uh, many of us who have children. Uh, when my kids have done something wrong and deserve to be punished, I know about it. I know about it when I come home. You see, when I come home after a day of work, and my kids don't come running up to me and give me a big hug, they are in hiding, then I know that they have been bad that day and they are deserving of punishment because my wife has rightfully or wrongfully told them, wait until daddy comes back. And they are waiting, hiding in fear. But I know when they give me huge bear hugs because they're so happy to see me, then I know they have been good boys and girls throughout the day and have not given mom such a hard time. In the same way, that's how we relate to God. When we have sinned, in our view of God, when we have done something wrong, we, we cower, we hide. We think we've sinned so much that somehow God cannot have a relationship with us. And so we think that only those who live perfect lives can have an amazing relationship with God. And we have this view because we don't have a balanced view of God's justice and God's compassion. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 6, you know this verse well. Let us come boldly to the throne room of grace. To do what? To receive what? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6. That we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. Yes, we respect God. We honor Him for who He is. And yet the Bible tells us God welcomes us. The Bible describes God as one who is compassionate. And His holiness and His justice do not preclude Him from being compassionate and merciful. This morning, we want to see three evidences of his compassion that are present in our everyday life. Let's take a look with the lenses that the Bible desires, desires for us to look through. Verse 41. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. Now, this may seem kind of odd. Here, evil King Ahab is told by the prophet Elijah to go and get some food, find nourishment. And yet, from this innocuous verse, we begin to see the handprint of God's compassion. You see, God's unconditional love for his chosen people has never wavered even in their disobedience. As Ahab represents the people of Israel, Elijah tells Ahab to go and eat, nourish yourself. Why? For the rain is coming. God is a God of justice, and yet his compassion compels him to restore his people. You know, it's like when you discipline your children... In your anger, when you're angry with them, you threaten them things that you don't carry out. You tell them, fine, if you don't like the food, you'll never eat again. I'll never cook for you. Cook for yourself, right? I'm sure many mothers or fathers have threatened that. Or when they don't pay attention to you as they're playing on their gadgets, as they answer you back, what do you tell them? Give me your gadgets, the ones I bought for you. You're never going to get this back. Some of you are smiling. You've heard that from your parents. Or perhaps some of you, you're, you've done something wrong and your parents ground you and they tell you, you will never leave this house again. 
And then you realize, oh, my parents are angry. And then you apologize, you say you're sorry. And what do you as parents do? You give back their gadgets after maybe a day or two. You let them out of their rooms after a few hours. You cook them a nice warm meal. Because intrinsically, you love them. A God whose foundation on unconditional love forgives his people and restores them. You see, if you're taking notes, number one, the first evidence of God's handprint of compassion is in his forgiving restoration. Number one, God's forgiving restoration. God is restoring the very people who have turned their back on him. They have acknowledged the one true God on Mount Carmel, and God is restoring them. Look at verse 42. So Ahab went up and ate and drank, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees. And look at something very interesting, verse 43. And said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And seven times he said, go again. Ahab does what Elijah instructs and gets nourishment, while Elijah himself goes up to the top of Carmel. And notice the position that the Bible tells us Elijah puts himself in. He puts his face and his head between his knees. He is in a posture of humility. He is in a position where he is interceding and asking of God in prayer. What is he asking for? For God to restore the rain to come. And while he is fervently interceding with God, he asks his servant to go look eastward towards the Mediterranean Sea where rain clouds usually form to see if there are any rain clouds. And I've been on the top of Mount Carmel many times, and you can see very clearly the Mediterranean Sea to the east. Six times Elijah asks his servant to go to check the eastern horizon for any signs of rain. And every time he comes back and he says to Elijah, there is nothing. You know, I've always been fascinated by this story. I've often asked, why doesn't Elijah just look for himself? Is he that lazy? Why does he have to ask his servant to go take a look? The Bible is silent in this matter. It's one of the questions I have for Elijah when I see him in heaven. But I think he asked his servant to go take a look because Elijah is preoccupied. What's he doing? He is fervently interceding with God on behalf of his people. He is asking God to forgivingly restore the rain back to the lands. I want you to listen very carefully. Restoration is not automatic. God has every right not to forgive and restore. God is under no obligation in this context to bring back the rain after his people have turned their back against him. And every time Elijah's servant would come back with a report of no rain cloud, Elijah would plead with God more. God, they have 
ask for forgiveness. They have acknowledged you. Would you restore the rain? I think this delay six times shows a very deep and profound truth about how God operates. We often think that when God forgives us of our sins, which He does through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that there is immediate restoration. Meaning everything in your life goes back to how it was before you sinned. And yet the Bible tells us there are consequences to sin. And sometimes that restoration to a condition before the sin may not be immediate. Sometimes we have to wait after we've asked God for forgiveness and He does forgive us immediately through the blood of Christ. We have to wait before He fully restores us. Sometimes that restoration happens after this life. The drought will surely end, that is assured, as God told Elijah in verse 41. But God does not tell Elijah in verse 41 when the drought will end. And that is what Elijah is pleading for. He is pleading that God would restore rain immediately. And I think it's something we need to understand first so that we do not abuse the truth of God's compassion. Does that make sense? This is something we need to understand so that we do not abuse the, the truth of God's compassion. You know, so many people simply think that I can live in sin, I can pray that God would forgive me, and boom, immediately, after the consequences of sin, they will all be reversed immediately. But restoration takes time. Verse 44. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud, as small as a man's hand, rising out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. On the seventh time, the servant sees a small cloud, as small as a man's hand. And Elijah knew that God's forgiving restoration to his people would come now. And Elijah knew that when the rain would come, it would come very hard and quick. So he tells his servant, go, tell Ahab that he needs to get back to his palace in Jezreel because it's about to get real muddy and it may flood. That's what happened, verse 45. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. From that fist-sized cloud... It turned into a mammoth rain clouds and the rain poured down. What an evidence of God's forgiving restoration. God's handprint of compassion is seen in his forgiving restoration. You know, the fact that God has forgiven us and restored us and has not taken away from us all that we deserve to lose when we sin is a testimony to his compassion. You see... You're asking probably in your minds right now, well, then where's the compassion, Pastor? I don't see it every day. You can see it every day when you begin to understand that we deserve to lose everything. And yet the fact that God allows us to keep anything is a testimony to His forgiving restoration. For many of us who have businesses and are thriving 
and we're doing quite well, and yet we have used dishonest means to get where we are. And yet, yes, we've asked for forgiveness. The fact that God hadn't taken away, hasn't taken away our businesses and has continued to allow it to thrive is a testimony to His compassion as evidence through His forgiving restoration. The fact that many of you have wonderful children and yet you yourself have not evidenced a good model for how one should live Christ-like, again, is a testimony and evidence of God's compassion as seen through His forgiving restoration. The fact that you get to eat a meal, three meals a day, some more, even though often you complain about the food you eat daily, is an evidence of God's forgiving restoration, right? We complain about our food. God has within his every right to say, fine, you don't want the food? No food for you. And yet the fact that we have it is a testimony of his compassion. I want you to listen very carefully. You see, it's not about what God takes away from us that we should be thinking about. It's about what God lets us keep that we should be thinking about. You know, a lot of us complain. God, you've taken this away from us. We don't have this. We don't have that. Change your perspective. Think about what God lets you keep. And then you will begin to see his compassion. In fact, that's what God has been doing since day one when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. God has been in the process of fully restoring what man has messed up. You know, God could have washed his hands of us and he said, These ungrateful people, I I want nothing to do with them. And yet his loving compassion for his people has led him to restore what we've messed up since day one. Think of all the theological R.E. words in the Bible. Regeneration, resurrection, redemption, reconstruction, restoration. That's what God is all about. From Genesis to Revelation, from where man messed up in Genesis to how God restores His people to a condition which He set forth. God's compassion is evidenced throughout the entire Scripture. And it is most evident in His forgiving restoration. Verse 46. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran toward ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. What an interesting verse. The Bible tells us at the end of chapter 18 that God miraculously allows Elijah to outrun Ahab's chariots. Why do we care? Why do we care? Why do we care that Elijah got off the mountain faster than Ahab did and got to Jezreel first? Why it matters is what will happen next in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 19. Look with me. Chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent the messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Ahab tells his evil wife Jezebel what happened on the top of Mount Carmel. 
how 450 prophets of Baal had been executed and presumably the 400 prophets of Asherah. And she was very angry. She vowed with a death warrant that she would hunt down Elijah and she would kill him in 24 hours. Verse 3. And when he saw that, Elijah arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. It's a good thing that Elijah ran faster than Ahab's chariot, right? Because now he is past Jezreel. If he was sauntering along, taking him a sweet time, by the time Jezebel's orders came out, the armies could have easily encamped Mount Sinai, excuse me, Mount Carmel, and would have captured Elijah. But God in his sovereignty knew even before there was a death threat that there would be one, and he allowed Elijah to run faster than Ahab's chariot so that by the time the edict came out, Elijah was well past Jezreel in safety. Imagine what must be going through the mind of Elijah. Came out of a spiritual high. He has just been the conduit for God's for God to reveal his greatness and sovereignty. Elijah saw God bring restoration to the people through rain. He saw how these men and women of Israel, turning their backs to the living God Yahweh, now acknowledge him as the Lord Almighty. And you would think that he would probably think that everything else would go well. Because look how everything has fallen into place. But then the news that Jezebel put out a death warrant, and a death threat on his head, shattered his peace. And his greatest fears came to the forefront. I'm sure many of us have experienced that sort of what I term a Jezebel text or a Jezebel call. Where you're on a spiritual high, things are going well, and then you get a phone call, a text, an email, the news of great discouragement, and it changes everything in your life. Your greatest fears come into play, and you may be on a spiritual high, and it pulls you straight down. If I could share, our family just experienced something very similar about three weeks ago when all was going very well. I remember I had, about a month ago, just commented to my wife how blessed we were, how everything was going well, how after ten and a half years of ministry, things were finally clicking. After I spoke at a conference and I saw the moving of God through the Holy Spirit in the lives of those young people, I was on a spiritual high but my parents had waited after the conference to call me. Driving home, I got a phone call from my parents from the U.S. to give me the devastating news that my mother's cancer has returned after 15 years of being in remission. They told me that the doctor's initial assessment is that it is an aggressive form of cancer and that initially it is staged at at least stage 3. They are still doing further testing to assess final staging and will give us the prognosis and recommended course of treatment in one to two weeks. As you can imagine, 
our family is in shock. And all of our best laid plans fell apart. One phone call changing the life of an entire family. Joy turned immediately into fear and sadness. And although I'm a pastor, I'm also human. And I began to think of the worst. I began to sleep very little and began to worry as I've never worried before because I'm particularly close to my mother. Deep, deep prayers. Prayers I've never prayed before. Crying out to God. Precipitated with one phone call. My sister immediately flew back to be with them. I, as I mentioned in a testimony last week, canceled my speaking engagements for next month in California and will fly back to be with them, uh, to uh, be with the family as, they, as we make some important decisions. Uh, and then I've decided to bring our family so that uh, our children can bring joy as only grandchildren can bring to a grandmother. Please do pray for our family uh, as we go through this. But I think this experience is not unique to many of us. I'm sure you've experienced those moments where a phone call has come in, a, an email, a text, and it completely shatters your world. It changes the trajectory of where you think you are going. And for those of you who have experienced a moment like that, you can begin to empathize and sympathize what Elijah does next. Verse 4. And Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. The emotional response of Elijah as he finally stops running. He is in the safety of the wilderness near Beersheba. He falls immediately into spiritual depression. He doesn't want to go on with life. He quickly forgets how he was under the protection of God for three years by the brook Cherith and in the widow's second floor guest house. He immediately forgot what just had transpired a few hours ago, and how God had showed the power of his sovereignty and his omnipotence on Mount Carmel. Everything was forgotten. And what does Elijah do? He says, it's enough. I can't take it anymore. He prays that God would take his life. God, I'm tired. Tired, Lord. I wonder the questions that must be swirling in the mind of Elijah at this time. Where is God in all this? Where is his protection, even though he just saw God's protection? But when messages like that come into our life, we, we question why God would allow something like this. Why doesn't God seem to do anything? Does he not care? Is he not compassionate? And if you read this chapter, what is the response of God? He doesn't say anything. God doesn't speak to Elijah at this time. 
And many of us think, well, well, there it is, God. God is always silent when I need him the most. But God is not silent. You know what God is? God is patient. We often misconstrue his patience for his silence. In his patience, he allows Elijah to pour out everything in his heart out of anger, even things that would be sacrilege. You know, God could have easily and rightfully gotten mad at Elijah. He could have said to him, Elijah, you, you man of little faith, oh, you of little faith, or, or, or how can you forget so easily? Or how dare you ask for me to take your life? Don't you know that life is in my hands, not yours? But as Elijah screams out his frustration and that he is tired, God patiently listens. You see, the second handprint of compassion is evidenced, number two, in God's patience. God's patience evidences his compassion. You remember what Psalm 86 verse 15 tells us? But you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious. Note this phrase, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I did that this week. I, I did a word study on that phrase, slow to anger. And you know, I was surprised by how many times it is mentioned both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible wants to make it abundantly clear that God is patient. God is a patient God. God is slow to anger. He is not quick to anger, as many of us think. I've often said that the fact that we aren't struck by the proverbial lightning when we do something wrong is because God is infinitely patient with us. God puts up with our whining. God puts up with our complaining. God puts up with our sin. And if he wasn't patient with us, he would have given up on me many years ago. A hard-headed young man. And if you're honest with yourself, if God wasn't patient, he would have given up on you as well. He would have given up on this church a long time ago. But the fact that God still desires to use us and he listens to us and he puts up with us illustrates his compassion. You know, if you want to see God's patience vividly, look at the Son of God. Look at Jesus Christ, God himself. Look how he, he dealt and put up with those knucklehead disciples he had who just didn't get it. Three years with 12 men who you think would have gotten it after seeing all those miracles that authenticated his message and they still didn't get it. You know, if I was in Jesus' place, I would have replaced those 12 disciples with another 12 in about a month's time. Maybe not even that long. He put up with them for three years of his earthly ministry and then after he died, a lot of them still didn't get it. And he spent his post-resurrection, pre-ascension time ministering to them until they did. God is patient. And it evidences his compassion. I'm reminded of a, a funny story of a man's car who had stalled in heavy traffic just as the light turned green. He just couldn't get his engine to turn and 
you can imagine what happens next. A chorus of honking cars behind him began to make the matter much worse. He tried many times to start his car as the honking got louder. Finally, out of frustration, he got out of the car and walked back to the first driver, the first car behind him. And to the driver, he said, Sir, I'm sorry. I just can't seem to get my car started. If you want, you can go and give it a try while I stay here and blow your horn for you. Maybe before we complain about how slow God is to act, and we blow our horns and gasket, impatient that God isn't working fast enough, we maybe need to remember just how patient He is when He deals with us in our own issues, that He hasn't blown the horn on us. God's patience evidences his compassion. Verse 5 and 6. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked with coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Literally, Elijah curls up in a ball and sleeps. That's what many spiritually depressed people do. And as he sleeps, suddenly an angel appears to him and tells him, get up and eat. And I love verse 6. The angels then tell him, hey, Elijah, get up. I found some bugs for you. Bugs are full of proteins. They will help you in your journey. Hey, Elijah, there's a lot of good grass there. Don't eat that one. That one's poison ivy. Eat this one. Good grass here. Come, let's eat. Let's have a salad. Look what the Bible says in verse 6. God had sent this angel to instruct this angel, and I'm interested to see which angel this is, to bake a bread for him. Where the angel got flour, I have no idea. Was it angel cake? No. Baked them bread. He's running away from Jezebel. And the angel is baking him bread. Not only that, look what the Bible says, verse 6. There is by his head a jar of water. Where in the world does an angel get a jar in the middle of the wilderness? I have no idea. Again, one of the many questions I want to ask many when I get to heaven. Angel, where did you get that jug? He didn't say to Elijah, Elijah, hey, there's a dirty stream there. Get some water, eat some bugs, let's go. In the gentleness of who God is, he prepares for them an amazing meal. Lovingly prepared by God's servant for, for his complaining, spiritually depressed prophet while he was sleeping. And my friends, God does the same with us. While we are sleeping, God is at work. Psalm chapter 3, verse 3 to 6. Read that when you get home. That speaks about God working while we are resting in Him. You know, I've countered many a times, I'm sure you have as well, going to sleep with the major problem only to wake up to find out that the problem had resolved itself. It's because God is working when you are asleep. And these verses almost contrast Elijah's cry of anger 
to show forth God's gentleness and sweetness to evidence his handprint of compassion. And that's the third evidence, number three. God's handprint of compassion is evidenced in his gentleness. How often do you think about the gentleness of God? How he treats us with kid gloves that this omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God doesn't slap us around, tell us to wake up, but with the gentleness of who He is in His character, He finds time to bake fresh, warm bread and prepare a refreshing jar of water for a servant who needs it. Verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is great for you. I'm interested to know what the second meal was like. I don't think it was bread. I think it was an amazing meal. But I want you to notice the statement in verse 7. For the journey is too great for you. God understands what Elijah is going through. God understands. He knows that in his condition, the journey ahead will be very difficult. And God in his gentleness knew what Elijah needed. And it restores Elijah physically and emotionally, and we'll see spiritually later, to give him the strength to push through. The way God treats us, if we really think about it, is full of gentleness. Verse 8. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. With renewed divine strength, Elijah journeys nonstop to Mount Sinai, to the place where God met Moses generations ago. And there, he will have an amazing encounter with God. And we'll talk about it in two weeks. When we look through the lenses that God desires for us to look at, the fact that God treats us so kindly and gently is a testimony to his compassion. He understands what we go through. He doesn't push us down when we are already down. But He gently lifts us up. Why is understanding God's compassion important? It's important to understand and see His compassion because it draws us closer to Him. When we can understand that there is a God out there who loves us so deeply that he is lovingly restoring us, that he is patiently waiting on us, that he is gently dealing with us. That is the God we want to run to. That is the one who we want to intimately share all of our problems, to come boldly to him and just to cry out what is on our hearts. A God of compassion 
shows us that when we turn to him, he doesn't add to the pain. He relieves it. And that is a lesson I think many of us need to learn. We seek solace in often the wrong places, having forgotten that there is one whose loving outstretched arms stretch this wide and he died on the cross and he said, this is how much I love you. I know what you're going through. I feel your pain. Do you see his compassion? I hope you will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding me and reminding all of us that you are a compassionate God. That the fact that we have so much which you can rightfully take away is a testimony of your compassion. Thank you for restoring us in your own time. Thank you for putting up with our complaining and our whining. Thank you for being patient with people like me who know better but often quickly forget who you are. Thank you for the gentle way you deal with us, that you don't step on us and push us down when we are already down, even though we deserve it. But you lift us up in the most special of ways by sending friends and family and encouraging notes. Those, Lord, are the handprints of your compassion. And when we recognize that, Lord, may this church understand who you are so that we run to you, expressing what is on the deepest emotions of our hearts and understand that there is a God who lovingly understands and empathizes with us. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. In Jesus' name we pray.